Our sermon today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 to 27. This is the word of God. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of the smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are more so composed which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that it lacked it, and that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Pam. Let us pray one more time for the exposition of God's word. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us the gift of baptism, that you not only assure us by your word, um, by the preached word, by your scriptures, that we are invited to be forgiven, to be cleansed by the blood of Christ, Lord God, but you show us by a visible sign and seal of an invisible grace that in baptism we can now think back about the fact that Christ himself is the one who washes our sins, that by looking at baptism, by remembering our own baptism, by thinking about our baptism, we can be assured that we have passed from one humanity to another, that we have seen you and that we have been bought by you, been redeemed by you from slavery unto a new family. So Father, help us now think about these things. Help us now see, Lord God, the gospel represented in this text. Help us think about the priesthood of all believers and help us therefore take a look at the fact that you have made us into one body and each a member of that body and therefore each essential to that body. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friends, we're continuing our series uh, this week in the priesthood of all believers. We've got at least one or two more sermons in this series, the priesthood of all believers. As we've seen the last few weeks, what does that mean? What is a priest of all believers? And it means, uh, essentially, that everybody has both an equal status and an equal responsibility within the church. If you're called into the church, if you've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, been washed by him, that means you are equally called together as saints, built up into a single body. So you have an equal status as saints, totally clean. Even though we were once sinners, we have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, it also means we have an equal responsibility. We've been called into a family. If we've been washed by the blood of Christ, it means we've been invited into a new community, to a new humanity, to a temple built and indwelt by the Spirit of God himself, and therefore nobody gets a free pass. Everybody has a responsibility and the duty and the privilege to live out according to the Holy Spirit. So everybody has a part to play within the church. 
And so we're coming this week to a passage that should be, it's a bit longer this week, yes, but it should be familiar to a lot of us because it's read in all sorts of different occasions in 1 Corinthians 12 about how the church is a single body uh, with many members with Christ as its head, which is a, a very nice articulation of the priesthood of all believers. But what's often missed in this passage is that verses 12 to 27 actually begins with Paul reminding the Corinthian church of their baptism, right? So this passage, even though, yes, it's about membership and it's about how everyone has a part to play, the priesthood of all believers, it's actually grounded and began in the initiation rite, so to speak, of baptism. Baptism becomes the basis or, or, or the, the beginning points of the body of Christ growing together as one and many. So this week, we're, as we have baptisms and we're still continuing our series and the priesthood of all believers, seems appropriate to me to go through this passage, which sees the connection between baptism on the one hand and the priesthood of all believers on the other. So we have four points from today's sermon, four points. First, baptism as a sign and seal. Baptism as a sign and seal, we're gonna take a look at what that means, all that implies. Second, baptism into a body. Third, baptism into solidarity. And fourth and finally, baptism into honor. All right, four points. Baptism as a sign and seal as a first point. So take a look at our passage here. Baptism as a sign of seal and seal. Look at verse 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, that's a beautiful way of articulating the priesthood of all believers, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. Christ's body is one with many members. And what do the, what do those members consist of? How do we become a member? What does it mean to become a part of the body of Christ? Well, we take a look at our baptism, verse 13. For, in other words, the basis of the unity and diversity in Christ's body is in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Notice that. Baptism is, is into one body. We'll return to that later. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of one spirit. Let's just pause there. So baptism is a sign and seal. And when we think about the fact that baptism is a sign and seal, we have to ask the question, what is it a sign of and who's doing the signing? All right? What is it a sign of and who's doing the signing? If baptism is not a sign and seal, who, who's the agent behind it? Who is, it? who is doing the act of baptism, in other words, right? And a lot of people think maybe that the one doing the baptism is the minister, or even the water itself. But we're gonna see that it's not the water that saves you, nor is it dependent upon the piety of the minister administering it. And neither is baptism, friends, as this passage is seeing, something that the, the recipients of the baptism is doing. It's not the one who's getting baptized who's saying, I will now be baptized. Because look at again verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized. Now this is one of the rare occasions where I prefer the translation of the NASB over the ESV because the NASB, the New American Standard Version of the Bible, actually talks about how it is for by one spirit we were all baptized. The in one spirit language in the ESV there talks about how it is the spirit who's doing the baptizing. All right? It is not the minister who's primarily doing the baptizing. It is not the water that primarily washes because the water is a sign of the spirit's working. Rather, when one is baptizing as a sign and seal, the one being baptized is passive. There's a real sense in which it is the Holy Spirit himself 
who by means of the water, by means of the minister, yes, but it is the Holy Spirit himself who is doing the baptizing. And so when we talk about baptism being a sign, all our confessions of faith talk about baptism being a sign and seal. Baptism is not primarily done by the minister or the water, nor is it done as an act of faith by the one getting baptized. In other words, baptism is not a sign of your conversion. Baptism is not primarily a sign of your testimony of you being converted unto Christ. Rather, baptism is God's doing. Baptism is a sign of an act of God. And that has huge implications. So the one getting baptized is under the work of God and the Holy Spirit. The one baptized is being conducted and being entranced into the one body of Jesus Christ. So it's not dependent on the minister, not dependent on the water, not dependent upon a testimony. And that's crucial. It's not dependent on the testimony. It's not you who's choosing to get baptized primarily. It's what's God's doing in the baptism. And this is key and important because, you know, when I first became a Christian, I, I, I was an atheist for a long time. I was an atheist for a long time. When I first became a Christian, I was telling my testimony in all sorts of different places. I was like, I, I was gung-ho, right? And I, I came into church, and I was motivated to tell people what happened to me as I was converted and what happened, how did I, you know, how did I leave my atheism and enter into Christianity? How did I get baptized? And testimonies was a very regular thing, especially in a culture of altar calls where a radical conversion experience was seen to be somehow essential to the Christian faith, all right? And so baptism became tied to that. Baptism became no longer a sign of God's work, but a sign of your testimony. So it was often taught in the church that if you had a conversion experience, though you were baptized as a baby, you got to get baptized again. What is that communicating? That's communicating that baptism is a sign of your act of faith. Baptism is a sign of your testimony. Baptism is a sign of your a new commitment rather than primarily an act of what God is doing to bring you into a new body. And what happened as I was telling my testimony oftentimes, I would come off after I told my testimony, I felt pretty good about myself. And I remember there were people who came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I've never experienced a conversion experience like that before. And you were pretty bad as an atheist. So like, I feel like I got to experience the non-Christian life first before I get, become a Christian. Like I need that conversion experience. And I also remember thinking as I heard other people's testimonies. You know, this apparently is a thing I read an article last night that talked about testimony envy. Apparently that's a thing. Um, where I would hear non-believers become Christians and their non-Christian past was worse than mine. And I felt insecure. I was like, wait a minute. That guy did all that kind of stuff? I never did that. My goodness, that's a, that's a greater testimony. You know, you know? And then as I kept telling my testimony, um, as the years went on, I started to realize that I told my testimony in different ways. When was I really converted? How was I really, was it my mentor primarily? Was it that sermon that one time? And I couldn't really like remember. And then I started to have an existential crisis. And I was like, if I don't remember my conversion anymore that well, like what do I do? Like, does that mean I gotta rededicate my life? Like I need, I need to recommit myself, you see. But here's the important thing about baptism, friends. Some of you here, look, 
it says here that all of us were baptized to one body, Jews or Greeks. And that's paradigmatic. That's all of humanity. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And most often, and, and, for, and especially in the context of the ancient world, if you were a Jew, it means you grew up in the synagogue. You grew up in the church. If you were a Gentile, more often than not, that means you, left, you lived your life as a total non-Christian. You were a hedonist. You worshiped many gods. You were promiscuous. You were, you know, doing all kinds of things in your work life that you wouldn't be proud of. But Jews, they were righteous. They grew up in the church. Um, more, more often than not, the Jews grew up singing the Psalms, right? They, they grew up within the church. And therefore, the Jews never really had a conversion experience. But more often than not, the Gentiles did. The Gentiles would not have been grown up in a Jewish home or in a church home. They would have needed to be evangelized to. And most often than not, the Gentiles were first-generation converts looking in, hearing the gospel for the first time, and baptized as adults. And what I realized, and I stopped focusing so much on my testimony now, is not only does it make others insecure about their own conversion and makes me question my own conversion experience, is that I would often make those who've grown up in the church envious too. Because they were like, I, I never remembered a time where I wasn't a Christian. All I remembered was my mom and dad were, catechi were catechizing me over breakfast every morning. All I remember was I've always believed that Jesus was my savior. All I remember was I was at church every Sunday. And I don't remember when I wasn't a Christian. And when I gave my testimony, I, often, I realized that I often made those who grown up in the church felt there was less than because they never had that experience. But you see, friends, what saves you, what baptism is representative of, is not your conversion. You're not saved by having a spectacular testimony. You're not less of a Christian. You're not, your status of a Christian is not less or, or higher than, whether dependent upon whether or not you've had that kind of experience or conversion. You are just as much a Christian if you've never had a conversion experience, just as if you had a conversion experience, Jew or Gentile. It's not about your testimony, because it's never been about you. It's never been about us. But rather, when we think back about our baptism, what you should be assured of, in other words, when you're feeling an existential crisis, am I really saved? Did I really pray that sinner's prayer? Did I really come up? Did I really mean it when I went to up in that altar call? That's not what should assure you of how you became a Christian, of how, whether you are a Christian, whether you're saved. No. What saves you, rather, is Christ. Look upon that. And if you don't remember your baptism, that's okay. Remember what baptism signifies. God is the one doing it. God is the one saving you. So it's a sign and seal of God's work. It's a sign and seal of not your testimony, but rather what God is doing to bring you into a new body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. But not only that, it's a sign and seal of our need, our common need for cleansing. Our common need for cleansing. Uh, you know, water washes dirt from the body. And just as the Heidelberg Catechism says, just as water washes dirt from the body, the Spirit washes our soul from all impurities because this is what the blood of Christ does. When you are witnessing a baptism, or some of you who are baptized um, as infants or as adults, any time you remember your baptism, anytime you're witnessing a baptism, you are confessing that every single person needs a cleansing. You are confessing that 
first and foremost, our fundamental human need is that we need a good conscience because we know that we at bottom are sinners in need of grace. So that when you look at someone getting baptized, when you remember your baptism, your fundamental remembrance is that we are sinners in need of grace and we need cleansing. We need cleansing, whether by, by sprinkling or by immersion. It doesn't matter because as we saw in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And in the book of Acts, some people were immersed. Both of these things signified that your need for cleansing. If God has sprinkled clean water in you, the same way that God will sprinkle blood over those um, who were sinners in the Old Testament because they needed to be covered by blood because the wages of sin is death. Or if you were immersed, it shows that you needed to be punished, but then you needed to be recreated for you to walk in newness of life. So baptism, in other words, grants our body, if we are truly united to Christ, coming to church, where is our room for pride? Baptism shows that whether you're slave or free, whether you are Jew or Gentile, you had a common need to be cleansed by a Savior. So that's the first point. Baptism's meaning, it's not primarily about you, it's God is doing it, and it showed that you needed to be cleansed by God. Every single person here needs to be cleansed by God. Everybody needs cleansing. But not only that, look at verse uh, 13 again. Second point, baptism is always into a body. Baptism is always into a body. Notice verse 13 again. For in one spirit, we were always baptized into one body. And I just want to focus very briefly on that little word into. That little word into. Baptism not only is not just a sign and seal, not, not primarily of your testimony of what God is doing, but baptism is an inherently transitionary act. In other words, when you're baptizing someone or when you are getting baptized, baptism is transitioning you from one realm to a new realm. There's a movement. There's a direction. Baptism isn't just, I'm baptized, great, now that's a great sign. No, no, no. It's a movement. It's a sign of membership. It's a movement from one body into a new body. And this is what it's saying. When you're baptized, you're baptized into the body of Christ. So in verse 14, it says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many, so that as many as were baptized, they've entered into this new community such that those who shouldn't even be getting along in the outside world suddenly get along in the church. Slave or free, they don't get along in the outside world, but then suddenly, they're, if they're both baptized, they're brought into this new community, they're transitioning from an old way of living to a new way of living, from an old nexus of relationships to a new nexus of relationships, such that Jews or Greeks, which normally, again, don't get along in the outside world, suddenly comes into the church and they need to get along. Jews suddenly have to kill their pride and they need to say to themselves, I needed cleansing just as much as the Gentile. It didn't matter if I grew up in the church or if, if this person had just became a Christian 10 minutes ago. We're both equally in the same body. Slaves had to embrace their slave masters if they both became Christians. And slave masters needed to treat their slaves as a brother, therefore no longer treat them as slaves, as we saw a couple of weeks ago as well, because they've been brought into a new body. And two images from the Old Testament confirm this, as we know from the New Testament as well. 
right, two events in the Old Testament. Maybe you've heard about these things as you grew up in church. Two events in the Old Testament was actually talked about as a baptism in the New Testament, all right? Two events. First is the flood, and the second is the exodus. What happened in the flood? In the flood, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Noah and his family got into an ark, and they were brought through the waters, moving them from one old world of sin, brought them through judgments, and they entered into a new world, namely after the flood. So baptism, therefore, according to 1 Peter 3, especially as Noah, it was a type of baptism, was traversing into one, from one old world into a new world, with Noah and his whole family being saved by water. Not only that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Moses, when he brought the Israelites from the slavery of Egypt, from the dominion of Pharaoh, was brought into the Red Sea, Moses and all the families of Egypt, uh, of the Israelites from Egypt, crossed through the Red Sea, brought out of the water, traversed through the other side onto dry land, and they were therefore traversing from one realm to another, from the dominion of Pharaoh, which is a type of Satan, to the dominion of God unto the promised land. Notice, by the way, that whole families were brought, all right? Noah and his family, Moses and his family. It doesn't mean that they were all saved. We know that some of the first generation of people from the Israelites that went out of Egypt and unto the promised land were not probably true believers, but they were still benefiting from the baptism of the Red Sea, traversing from one land unto a new land. And that's what is being said here, friends. Your baptism is an inherently transitionary thing. Your baptism, therefore, is an inherently communal thing. It's a transition from one way of living into a new way of living, such that now you have to relate in this new community, this new body, because you've all together been brought out of the waters and into a new nation, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, as 1 Peter 2 said, right? Baptism is always transitionary. Baptism is never, therefore, just individualistic. We know, friends, that it's become part of parcel of our culture, right? To just simply baptize our kids when they were born, and then we might never see those families in church ever again after that. They came to church because they had a kid, their kids got baptized, and then where did they go? I'm not sure. Where did we go? We're not sure. And in fact, if you took a look at polls in, in the States and all around the world um, about whether or not you could be a good Christian and not go to church, most people say yes. What does it even mean to be a good Christian? That's another thing. But most people say yes. Most people, in other words, have the conception that it, church or going to the body of Christ is not essential for living out your faith. That you could be a Christian and just be a free-floating, you know, someone out there who just confesses Christ and never be a part of church and even be baptized and never be a part of church. But you see the weight of baptism? If it is true that baptism is a transitionary thing, that baptism moves you in a particular direction, moves you from one way of living to a new way of living, that means, friends, Christianity calls upon you to think about your baptism and the responsibilities that are brought with that baptism. Be a part of a body of Christ. Baptism fundamentally tells you that you're not your own. 
Baptism primarily tells you that you are a member of a greater whole. Baptism primarily tells you that your life hasn't bought. And you've been moved from a life of slavery to a life of freedom into a new family. So live that way. Baptism has a whole host of implications that we never really even think about. And so baptism, in other words, kills all passivity, right? Not only does it kill individualism, it kills all passivity because if you've been baptized, you know that you have a part to play. You know that you are part of a new family. So verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. So what is this thing? It's, it's, Paul is tackling a common misconception about going to church and thinking that going to church is just a spectator sport of people out there looking at what people are doing up here. But Paul is also invoking baptism to remind us that church is never about an audience watching entertainment. Church is never just about spectating. Not only is it saying that, it's also saying that church means that a whole body is coming together, each with different gifts and talents. And it, require, it means that everybody needs to work together for the church to function. So nobody has the nobody gets the right to remain passive. Everybody has a part to play. And I think that's crucial for us to understand. And we've covered this in, in multiple sermons throughout. Church doesn't mean that you just pay a tithe for the professionals to do spiritual work. Doesn't mean, church doesn't mean that you've done your duty just by going to Sunday. But rather, you're part of the body because you're part of the ministry. You're called to represent God on earth together. Because I think... A lot of us come to church and, you know, sometimes, okay, sometimes we have a season of life where we need help, but a lot of us come to church with this mentality. I'm in church. Help me. All right. I'm just, I'm just here. Go take care of me. Take care of me. And they're like, chase me. Come pursue me. And you take care of me. And then the whole body has to come together to the one person, right? Maybe you're in a season of life where maybe that's required. But what this is saying is, you might not be the preacher. That might not be your gift. You might not be a musician. That might not be a part that you're playing. You might not be called to mercy ministry. But whatever it is, this passage is saying, think about it. You have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. And the imagery of the body here is useful because then this is not just talking about formal ministry. Baptism doesn't just give you the responsibilities and therefore ask you to think about your gifts and whether you're called to some kind of formal ministry, Sunday services, mercy ministries, whatever it might be. But if you're part of the body, see, you're part to be knitted together by one another, primarily not, in, not just in institutional relationships, but in organic relationships. A lot of people have asked us through our sermons, Okay, does this mean that everybody needs to be working in some way for the church, for they to be involved, for they to be really living out the priesthood of all believers, for them to be really living out baptism? But friends, the church is not just an institute. It's an organism. It's a body. Which means this. Even if you don't feel like you're gifted for a particular kind of formal ministry, you know what you could be? 
You could be a friend. You could simply come alongside one another and simply be a friend with one another organically. And Christianity provides a unique kind of basis for friendship that allows Jews and Gentiles to come together, slaves are free to come together, those who would not get along on the outside world to come together and say, we will now be friends in this new family, this new body. We can simply be friends. So even if you might not be called to some kind of formal ministry, being a friend to somebody means a lot. Being a friend to somebody means a lot. Simply coming alongside them, having coffee intentionally, making sure that you visit people in times of need. That's something that anyone could do. That's something that, yes, children could do. Be a friend to one another. See, being a part of a body, therefore, means not just formal ministry, but also friendship with one another. Don't give in to the passivity mentality. Rather, pursue active friendships. Pursue active friendships. Third, baptism is always into solidarity. Notice here what it says in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This is verse 21. 22 it says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be the weaker are indispensable. So not only is Paul saying when you're baptized, you have to be active and pursuing relationships with one another. You also have to be saying that this relationship is so deep, is so real to you, that in an honest way, you start to think and behave and act as if you need other people in the church. You need one another. Christianity is not an individualistic faith. We need to come together and say and have such a relationship that we're so vulnerable with one another that we have a tangible need for one another so that we can say with Paul to one another that I need you. And we can't say I have no need of you. And that word need is a very key word there, right? And again, the imagery of the body there is useful. You think about what Paul is saying here. He's saying that each one of us forms a member of the body like an eye or a hand or a feet. All right? Now just take that imagery and then think about a severed limb, the act of dismemberment, like just a hand, right? You're just a walking and crawling hand. That's the stuff of horror movies, right? If you see a crawling hand, you're going to be thinking, that shouldn't be crawling because that shouldn't be living. Here's the image of the body. Right, here's the image of the individual Christian. Here's the image of that poll that says you could be a Christian and not be part of the body. What's, what's the image of the Christian that isn't part of a church? A dismembered hand. Not only is a dismembered hand, you know, it can't stay alive for long. Right? You could say it twitches after the body dies or something like that. I don't know. But a dismembered hand shouldn't stay alive for long. But it can't perform all the functions that it's required to. First of all, a hand has a specific function. And a hand requires a body to function well, right? And so if you are actually an individual floating Christian, not a part of any local church, that's the image that Paul is giving. The purpose of the hand is no longer clear, but the hand needs a body to nourish it. And that's exactly what Paul is calling us to. Notice that we need one another the way the hand needs the body and the body needs the hand. You chop off a hand, 
body can't really function that well. You chop off your pinky, the body can't really function that well. Those that seem, indispen- those that seem dispensable are really always working so that you as a whole body can function together. And this is a key thing, right? Because let me just address men here for a second. Men are afraid of that word need, right? Because men are, are, are so prone to saying to one another, saying to themselves, I have no need of anyone. I'm good. I'm a lone wolf. Every man thinks that they're John Wick, right? You kill my dog. I don't need any help. I'm going to come and get you. Yeah, that's what every man thinks. And this is not just anecdotal, right? But it's a common experience between me and Tazar where when a couple is fighting, the first person that comes to me or Tazar is the wife or the girlfriend. They come and then it's like, I, I don't know why, but I can't seem to get my husband or my boyfriend to go to counseling or to go to church. It's always the wife first. You notice that? Because here's the fact of this, okay? I'm not, I'm not going to let all women off the hook, but let's just talk about men here for a second. Men have a higher, it's just a fact of life, I think. We ought to admit it. We just have a higher ego. We hate to admit that our significant other is right, <laughs> that we need help. We hate, to be, we hate to be vulnerable. You know, I remember a friend of mine gave me a book, it's Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. And um, when, when I was given this book, and my friend, his name is Lucas, he wouldn't mind me sharing this, Lucas asked me, what do you think of this book, Gray? You know, The Meaning of Marriage. Isn't it really practical? Isn't it so applicable? Doesn't it make you want to think about your life or something like that? He wants me to get vulnerable. I could tell. He's a counselor. <laughs> and uh, I remember I took a look at that book, and we have, men have a specific way of deflecting vulnerability. We're just so good at it. So I picked out a, 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 a feature of the book that made sure that I didn't need to become vulnerable after I said it. I said, yeah, Tim Keller is such a good writer. The writing is really good. I could read that book, you know, and I just keep reading and I'm not bored at all. And I said that. And I could just see the look in his face because he knew what I was doing. Other times, to deflect vulnerability, you use humor. Hey, how's your relationship? Ha, <laughs> you know, it's all great. It's all rosy. You know, I love marriage or something. You know, we, we, we use humor to deflect that, right? Because humor diffuses tension. When someone asks us a vulnerable question, what's your need, right? You use humor, it deflects the tension and lightens up the mood for everyone. Then suddenly everybody's back in the surface level. You see, we're so good. Just watch community groups. We'll never see it the same way again. Because when you're sitting in your small group and you're asking the question, what's your struggle in life? You know, I can't wake up in the morning. Come on, that's not your real struggle in life. Tell me what's your real struggle in life. We're so good. We're so good at deflecting our need. We're so good at making sure that people don't see through us, but people do. We're so good at thinking that we can simply keep deflecting vulnerability and we can live life on our own. Men, let me tell you, it's strength to admit that you need help. It's strength to be able to listen to your significant other. It's strength to admit that you need one another, that you need deep and close friendships with one another. It's strength to admit, men, that you're not a floating bicep. 
that you need the rest of the body to thrive. And by the way, another implication of this, right, C.S. Lewis has that famous analogy of how you really only know your friend in the midst of a community, right? Uh, like the first time I met Tazar, I hope you don't mind me, I didn't ask you that you're going to use this. The first time I met Tazar was through Skype, and I thought, man, this guy's a serious guy. He was pretty great, you know, it seems, seems to be solid, thinking theologically. And then I saw him, you know, relate with Tati, and then I thought, man, okay, he's not that serious after all. Um, in other words, there, was, there were parts of Tazar that I saw when we were on a one-on-one -on -one conversation that was limited to what I could bring out of him. There were just things about Tazar that I couldn't bring out of him, right? And then I saw Tazar counseling others, and I saw Tazar with other friends, and I saw Tazar with Tati. Very different factors of Tazar come out. You see what I mean? That's why, by the way, you should date within a community, because when you're on a date, I'm getting practical here, when you're on a date, for those two hours, all you have is their, per is their best self. By the way, that's tiring. That's why dates can go for more than two, three, four, or five hours, right? Because by the time five hours is over, you're both kind of like, you know, I need to rest. I need to just, you know, crawl, crawl into bed or something. You, it's tiring to stay rational. It's tiring to stay holy. It's tiring to stay sane. And that's why you need a community because you need to watch how people react to other people. There are things that other people bring out of a particular character that you would otherwise see that you won't otherwise see. You'll all, in other words, you'll only get a one-sided picture of someone unless you've seen them in a community. Unless you've seen them in a community. And friends, if that's true of a human being, let me pivot the point here, if that's true of a human being, how much more true is it of God? If your relationship with God has been not communally determined, mediated by the presence of others relating with that same God, your view of God, my friend, will be entirely one-sided. Will be one-sided. If you've never suffered before, and you've, been, you've, you've thought to yourself, I've thought to myself, I've been a Christian all my life, I've never suffered before, your view of theology, no matter how many times you've read the Bible on your own, will be this. If I have a relationship with God, my life will go well for me. My life will go well for me. But even if you've never suffered personally yourself, and if you're part of a local church, you will meet someone who's suffering. You will meet someone who's facing a tragedy, who has a relationship with the same God that you believe. And then you're looking at this person, and then suddenly, friends, you know what's going to happen? Your paradigm of your God is going to be utterly shattered. Because you're going to see this friend who's suffering this tragedy, who's still faithful unto his God, and you're seeing him or her, and you're going to say to yourself, God does that? In other words, God is faithful even when he sends suffering to another person. So God doesn't just guarantee happiness upon a believer's life. God does that. And then that's when images like this become utterly tangible because these relationships come together in that way, right? Not only do you have a fuller view of God, because now you have a community that pictures for you, a fuller vision of this God, but now you see one another, and perhaps God is wanting to use you as a member of his body to comfort those who need to be comforted, to come alongside him so that he might feel or she might feel, I needed you, and Christ was present in and through you. I needed you. 
And so Paul says in verse 25 and 26, there that second part of verse 25, it says, we might have the same care for one another so that if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. So the body is so closely and tightly knit, so closely and tightly knit, that if one member is suffering, everybody feels it. And if one member is rejoicing, you're able to rejoice, right? Talk about the suffering part, let's talk about the rejoicing part there, all right? If one member suffers, all of you suffer together. And this goes back to the imagery of the body, okay? Any one of you who knows me more than a month knows that I get sick a lot. <laughs> I get sick like every two weeks. People tell me I need to rest more. I don't know what it is. I just get sick a lot, right? And oftentimes when I get sick, I get really frustrated at myself, and then I deceive myself. Gray, even though you're sick, right, you got a stomach ache or something like that, you can work out. For, you know, the problem's in your stomach, not in your legs, so do squats. And, you know, or if I have a headache, I thought the problem's my head, you know, my arms are fine. I could work out. Try. I dare you, try. You got a stomach ache, try doing squats. I don't, don't do it. <laughs> Notice, what, what's, what's true about the body? What's true about the body? If one part of your body is suffering, the rest of the body can't really function, could it? You got a broken arm, you don't go to work and ride in your right hand and just say, oh, my left hand is broken, I don't feel no pain, I could just go on, I could just go on. You know, you don't, there's, there's something about your whole body that when one member of your body is affected, your whole body feels it. You got a stomach ache, you can't work out. You know, you, you, you've, got, you've, got, you've got pains, you've got a broken leg, you just can't really read with the same kind of focus. The most minimal things that all the other parts of your body should be able to do, they couldn't do because another part of the body is broken. And if you went to a doctor and you told your doctor, my leg is broken, and your doctor says, but your hand is fine, you will fire that doctor. You will, want, you will be so angry at him because you know that that's missing the point. That's missing the point. And, and church, right, we're so good at that. How many times have we justified ourselves by saying, yeah, the sermons aren't that great, but the music is fantastic. And that's like saying, yeah, your leg is broken, but, you know, your arm it looks great. Hey, that family is suffering. And you're thinking to yourself, but the mercy ministry is doing just fine. It doesn't justify it. Hey, these, these, these people need to be taken care of. And you justify it by saying, but the sermons have been so good. You see, if we truly are one body, do we feel the impact of one member suffering upon others? Are we able to come together and say, we all know it, we all feel it, and, and we need to send other members out to care for them. We need to take part of it. We need to take care of one another. And are we, if, if suffering together is a difficult task, friends, what about rejoicing? How many of us have the common implication or the common inclination to rejoice when someone else is successful? Someone else in the church is successful. If a member of the church is a successful person, right, do you really? Like you might think to yourself, suffering sounds difficult, but rejoicing, that's great. Like we all love to rejoice. But just think about this. If you've heard that somebody in your church, a member of your church, just entered into Forbes magazine, or just got a new partner romantically, 
Is your first inclination really, I am so happy for you? Or is your first inclination, why can't I get that? Aren't we so prone to envy? But here's what Paul is saying. Baptism into solidarity. Not only are you suffering with one another, but you, are, you, are, you ought to be so content that when one member rejoices because something good had happened to them, you would genuinely rejoice because you're so secure that you can simply be happy for one another. And so envy, envy is no longer there. Envy is no longer there. Which brings me to my last point, baptism into honor. How can we do that? How can we be so selfless that when one member suffers, we come alongside them and take responsibility because we're a new community? And how can we be so selfless that when one member rejoices, we can rejoice with them as well? Paul is aware of it. And notice in verse 25, what does he say is one of the greatest problems in the church? Division. Look at that. He says that, that there may be no division in the body. In other words, he's saying there that one thing that we need to avoid is division. And how is division caused? Self-centeredness, envy, you know, invulnerability, closing oneself off from one another, all the things that we just talked about. Division is always occurring in the church. How do we do this? How in the world do we make sure that we as a church, baptized together, acknowledging our sins together, can come together into one body without any division? Well, Paul gives us a little glimpse here where he says in verse 24, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. And then in verse 26, when he says, when one member suffers, all suffer together. One member is honored, all rejoice together. And then verse 27, it says, now you are the body of Christ. Right? Friends, You've been coming to CCC, you've been reading the Bible. I hope it's instinctive to you that when you read texts like one person was honored so that the others might be honored. One person's work implicates everybody else's. When one member of the body is rejoicing, everyone else should be rejoicing. And now you are the body of Christ. What does that mean? How can we avoid envy and division? We need to be so content and secure because why? Notice in Paul's analogy when he talks about the body, he never mentioned the head. He talks about the eye. He talks about the feet. He talks about the hands. Who's the head? When he talks about how when one member gets the honor to, to give to the other members of the, of, of, of the church, he isn't just talking about us. And yes, we should lift each other up, but who is he primarily talking to? Friends, why does it say that we were baptized into Christ. And then in Colossians 2, it says we were baptized specifically into his death and his resurrection. Friends, if you are baptized, you've been connected to the head of your body. And what happened to your head? He died in your place so that you, he who had all glory, lost all honor and glory so that you might be honored with him. He who was resurrected out of the grave was resurrected out of the grave into honor so that you might traverse from one realm, the realm of death and sin, into a new life, life with Christ. And when he was resurrected, your head was resurrected, so you were resurrected, such that if you know that the most important part of your body, your head, has a crown of glory now with you, and you identify with him, how can we be envious of one another? Should the eye now be envious of the hand? 
Should the feet not be envious of the eye? Should we not take a look at one another and say, how can I hate my own body? How can I still feel envious if I know that me staying afloat had never depended upon me, but on Christ, the resurrected head. And if he lives alive and if he's getting honor, I know that I will be too. I know that I will be too. And that's exactly the gospel, friends. I don't know what it is, why you've been, you've been coming to church. I don't know why you're here this morning. Let me emphasize. Here's what Christianity is about. Christianity doesn't say that you have come with honor and that's why God loves you. Christianity says that you have come naked and ashamed. That you have nothing in and of yourself. You were a dismembered hand withering and dying. And what you need is a savior, a living head, who would take you as a part of himself and would give you honor. And so if you have not an achieved honor, but a received honor, not an honor that you've gotten for yourself, but rather an honor that was given to you by somebody else, an honor that tells you that all of you are equally, all of us are equally sinners, how can we then take a look at one another in contempt? How can we then take a look at another in envy? How can we then... Put on a mask and say, I've got it all together. I don't need help. Come together. Take down your pride. Come as you are. Lay down all your hurts and sins and believe in Jesus Christ. He is your head. He is your substitute. Believe in him and have life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us such a glorious truth that Christ has come for sinners, not for the well, but for the dirty and ashamed. Not for those who are healthy, but those who are sick and in need of help. Father, help us acknowledge this reality and help us now as we take a look upon baptism to be assured for the rest of our lives that this is what happens to us. No matter when it happened to us, this is what happened to us. God saves us. And he's put us in the death of Christ. And he's lifted us up for glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with